As we prepare to look at God's Word together, let me take just a moment to introduce myself to you. You'll notice right off the bat that I am not David Sinclair. Uh, my name is Matthew Eichard, and I've had the privilege over the last almost eight years uh, to serve here at Clemson Presbyterian Church as the pastor of youth and families. Today, we're returning to our series in the Gospel of Luke entitled, The Certainty of a Savior. As we turn together to the 18th chapter of Luke, let us remember together that our sure and certain Savior knows the complexities of our uncertain lives. He knows our confusion. He knows our pain. He knows our fear, and He knows our anger. He knows the exasperation and the weariness that we feel. He knows the spectrum of emotions that we experience from the threat of physical illness or financial strain, and yes, even from severe weather. He knows us because He created us and because He became us. Let us never forget that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to bear our grief and to carry our sorrow. He is a certain and a present Savior even now. Our specific passage in Luke's Gospel today is chapter 8, verses 9 through 14. I want to encourage you to follow along, perhaps even in your own Bible, as I read for us now. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Will you pray again with me? Holy Spirit, we pray even now that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and our minds and our hearts to the brokenness of our own lives. The reality is that we fear to see ourselves, but we're asking you to show us, even now, who we really are. Drive us toward honesty, God, and even toward despair. Not a lasting despair that leads to hopelessness, but a genuine despair of self that drives us to see afresh and anew the necessity and the absolute sufficiency of Jesus' finished work on our behalf. Amen. 
Over these past few weeks, we've all been forced to consider a lot of weighty questions. Questions like, how bad is all of this really? Or, will I lose my job? Should I trust what I'm hearing from the media or even from the government? Am I ever going to go back to school this year? Can I keep my family safe? Will life ever really be normal again? Is God in control? As we turn our attention to Luke 18, I want us to ask ourselves another weighty question. Here it is. What does a saving faith in Christ actually look like? Or to ask the same question in a different way, what is it that makes up the heart of genuine Christianity? What's at the core of a real relationship with God through Christ? We're going to look at the way that Jesus answers all of those questions today from this parable in Luke 18. But before we get to the specifics of our, of our passage, I, I want to take a little time to think about parables in general and the broader context of Luke 18. If you're familiar with the teaching ministry of Jesus, then you'll know that he used parables on a very regular basis. There's the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the prodigal sons, and even the parable of the unjust steward. Luke's gospel in particular is full of Jesus' parables. In fact, the last passage that we looked at together in Luke was the parable of the persistent widow. So what are parables exactly? Well, I'm glad you asked. In general, parables are short, illustrative stories that are meant to teach significant spiritual lessons. They're typically small, but they pack a big intentional, carefully crafted punch. The parable given to us here is somewhat unique because it is actually prefaced with an explanation. Luke gives us the, here's why Jesus did this in verse 9. Look at it with me again. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In many respects, Luke just lets the cat out of the bag right here at the beginning. He tells us that Jesus is going to deal with that old, familiar enemy, our dirty, rotten, stinking pride. Now, before we go any further, let me just go ahead and warn you. Jesus is not going to hold back here. He's not going to play nice, and he's not going to play it safe with us. But remember, sometimes the very hardest things for us to hear are also the very best things to hear because they direct us all the more to the comforts of the gospel and to the real grace of the Lord Jesus. As we dive in together, you'll notice that our parable today is about a Pharisee and a tax collector. This particular parable, this story, is one of differences and disparities, a parable of stark contrasts. Along the way, we'll look at three specific ways that Jesus describes this great gulf that is fixed between the way of pride and the way of humility. 
We'll examine the two contrasting characters, their contrasting prayers and their contrasting destinies. First, let's turn our attention to the contrasting characters in this parable. In verse 10, Jesus begins his story by saying that two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. At the beginning of this parable, then, we're introduced to two men who are about the same business in the same place. They're engaging in the same religious responsibility, prayer, in God's appointed place of worship, the temple. But the similarities end there. The first man we meet in verse 10 is a Pharisee. Now, if you're an experienced student of Scripture, then you will automatically begin to view this man with suspicion. After all, we know that the Pharisees were largely antagonistic toward Jesus during his earthly ministry. But but I want you to suspend your knowledge about the Pharisees for just a moment. Put your first century glasses on with me. The Pharisees were an extremely influential and highly respected part of Jewish society. They set the standard for righteous or acceptable living. Many were consumed with the pursuit of perfection or blamelessness before the law of God. To the average Jewish man or woman, the Pharisees would have been the good guys, the really, really good guys. The other man that we encounter here in verse 10 is a tax collector. The very mention of the job title would have filled Jesus' audience with some strange mixture of anxiety and disgust. Tax collectors were typically Jewish nationals who worked for the Roman government against their own countrymen. To make matters worse, many tax collectors creatively increased tax rates so they could skim just a little bit of money off the top for themselves. In just a few weeks, we'll meet a man named Zacchaeus, a famous chief tax collector who openly admits to cheating other people. Tax collectors were viewed, and rightly so, as selfish, dishonest traitors who represented everything the Jewish people hated and feared about Roman authority. So here at the beginning of Jesus' parable, we meet a good guy and a bad guy. A respectable religious authority and the scum of the earth. Two men as different as night and day. If we think about it for just a moment, we'll realize together that a lot of history and a lot of our favorite stories are full of contrasting characters, just like the Pharisee and the tax collector. Who's more patriotic, George Washington or Benedict Arnold? Who's more virtuous, Harry Potter or Draco Malfoy? Who's more trustworthy, Mufasa or Scar? And who's more dedicated in the long run, the tortoise or the hare? If you're familiar with these characters, then these are easy decisions. So who's more righteous, the Pharisee or the tax collector? It's an easy answer, right? One man is an upstanding pillar of the community, and the other is a yellow-bellied turncoat who would stab you in the back just to make a dime. This is a no-brainer. But the reality is that Jesus has all of us right where he wants us, 
at this point. We're thinking one thing, and he's about to take a massive turn. Jesus is going to show us that perception is not always reality. Let's continue then by looking at the contrasting prayers in this parable. Jesus told us earlier that both men came up into the temple to pray, and now we hear their prayers. The Pharisee prays in verses 11 and 12. Read it with me again. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So what do we have here? Well, the the Pharisee starts off pretty well, right? He addresses God and begins to thank him. This is a familiar, and we might even say biblical, formula for prayer. But things go south in a hurry. Why? Because the Pharisee isn't actually thanking God for anything. He's simply congratulating himself for his superior morality and a job well done. Some translations of the text actually highlight this fact. Instead of reading the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, they say something like the Pharisee standing prayed to himself like this. The point here is that Jesus is probably highlighting the ridiculousness of the Pharisee's prayer. He's not talking to God at all. He's talking to himself, and his words are literally bouncing off the ceiling. Don't miss the specifics of this prayer either. He openly compares himself to the tax collector. We might be tempted to think that the Pharisee is just describing random sinful behaviors in verse 11, but tax collectors, from his perspective, were the extortioners, the unjust, and the political and spiritual adulterers of the age. The Pharisee is pinning a religious medal on his own chest at the expense of someone else less deserving who is within earshot. But he doesn't stop there. He spends time focusing on his productivity, his generosity, and his faithfulness in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's what this guy is saying. I am the ultra-righteous lawkeeper, God. I'm so much better than those grade A sinners, and I know you like me because I've done really well. And you know what, God? I'm pretty darn proud of myself too. The Pharisee doesn't need grace or mercy or forgiveness because he's good to go. He's just a good guy with a good reputation and a good track record. Now, now we're going to come back to this, trust me. But let me just stop right now and say this. If this Pharisee sounds anything like you today, then know that you have a serious, a serious problem before a holy God. The tax collector's prayer is in verse 13. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The differences here are immense and immediately noticeable, aren't they? 
Just look at the tax collector's posture. He stands far off. Most commentators believe that Jesus wants us to picture this tax collector just within the temple grounds. He isn't willing to get too close to the sanctuary and God's promised presence because he is keenly aware of his own unworthiness. He keeps his eyes fixed on the ground. He beats his own chest in an act of spiritual distress and deep contrition. This man is empty of pride and self-righteousness. We shouldn't be surprised then by the actual words of his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a simple, beautiful prayer. The tax collector recognizes his broken, sinful condition and asks God for mercy. When we hear the tax collector's prayer, I think we generally get the right idea. We know that he's asking God for forgiveness, but the word translated be merciful is really significant and profound. The the root word is the same as the word for propitiation. So the tax collector is not just asking God for general mercy. He's asking God for an atoning sacrifice, for the appeasement of wrath, and for an imputed righteousness. He is saying, God, I know that I am a rebellious, disobedient sinner. I know that I deserve judgment. I know that I cannot make myself clean. But God, if there is any way that you can save me, any way that you can make me acceptable in your sight, then please help me. The tax collector's prayer is the gospel. He's crying out to God for the saving work fully accomplished by none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. As I read and reread these prayers this week, two different songs kept coming to mind. The first song was a 2014 hit, The Man by Aloe Black. Here's the first few lines. Well, you can tell everybody. Yeah, you can tell everybody. Go ahead and tell everybody, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. That's the Pharisee in Luke 18. It's all about him, his accomplishments, and his achievements. But the second song that ran through my head was the 1763 hymn, Rock of Ages, by Augustus Toplady. Listen to the third stanza. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the tax collector in this parable. He has nothing And he knows it. And he's willing to publicly admit it. Let me ask you an honest question. Who is your life really all about? When you look into the depths of your heart, when you listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth, when you think about your spiritual condition before God, who's the hero 
of your story. If you're like the Pharisee, then you're convinced that God is somehow impressed by all of your hard work. You look in the mirror and you think, you know what? I've done pretty well for myself. I may not be the best person in the world, but I'm certainly a lot better off spiritually than terrorists and drug addicts and adulterers. I'm really happy about all that I've done for myself. But if you're like the tax collector, then you're a hot mess and you know it. You don't make excuses when sin shows itself in real time. You acknowledge and confess your sin and cry out for mercy because you know the kinds of depravity that lives in your heart. And you know that you can't do anything about it on your own. We have one final contrast or difference to look at in this parable before we really bring it all home. So let's look now at the contrasting destinies that Jesus describes in verse 14. Read it with me again. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus comes out and tells his listening audience, he tells us that it is the tax collector, the treacherous, greedy, good-for-nothing tax collector who is actually justified. The tax collector is the one living in dynamic, saving relationship with God. If we slow down, then, then we can almost feel the shock and the irony here in verse 14. But that's exactly the point. You see, the Pharisee is justified in his own mind. He was convinced that he was good enough because he had done enough. But the tax collector is justified in reality. Why? Because he had been humbled to the point of spiritual honesty. He has been justified by the grace of God because he knows he desperately needs the grace of God. Jesus' final words in this passage are striking. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In many ways, these words parallel the familiar verse, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In some ways, though, I think Jesus' warning in Matthew 7 provides us with an even clearer commentary on this parable. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What do the Pharisees and the workers of lawlessness have in common? They're obsessed with themselves and their so-called righteousness. They believe that they can conjure up something to please God through their own efforts. But Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. 
Those who attempt to secure salvation by working harder and being better than the really bad people will be humbled for all eternity under God's judgment. Near the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to consider a series of related questions. What does a saving faith in Christ actually look like? What is it that makes up the heart of genuine Christianity? What's at the core of a real relationship with God through Christ? The answer, according to Jesus' parable here in Luke 18, is humility and dependence. Saving faith looks like humility and dependence. The heart of genuine Christianity is humility and dependence. The core of a real relationship with God is humility and dependence. It is the humble tax collector who recognizes his sin and cries out for the mercy of God. It is the tax collector who receives salvation, not the arrogant, impressive, hardworking Pharisee. So what does this really mean for us sitting here today in the 21st century? It means that you and I must stop viewing ourselves as the good, spiritually competent people. We have to stop playing the I'm not really that bad card. We have to stop thinking and saying, I can do this on my own. If humility and dependence and salvation go hand in hand, then we should rejoice when we are forced to see our own sin and insufficiency. Let me say it this way. Anything that drives us toward greater humility and a greater recognition of our need of God's mercy in Christ is ultimately good for us. I'm going to say that again. Anything that drives us toward greater humility and a greater recognition of our need of God's mercy in Christ is ultimately good for us. I need you to look at me and listen. We've had a hard month, brothers and sisters. The isolation and disruption caused by the coronavirus has been incredibly difficult for many of us. Just last Sunday, our local area was ravaged by multiple highly destructive tornadoes. We're experiencing emotional distress, relational strain, financial loss. We're experiencing confusion and weakness and grief. These are stressful and disorienting times. Know that I say this with a heart of great love and compassion. These are humbling times. We are all learning that we are not enough. We are not in control. We are being laid low. And perhaps 
being forced to consider our own depravity as we find ourselves yelling at our kids, yelling at God, and turning to familiar vices like greed and gluttony and lust. If we're being really honest, then we have to admit that every single day shows us the depths of our sin. But be encouraged. God answered the tax collector's prayer. And God is still merciful to sinners just like you and me. Today, the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to look to Him in faith. Remember His words from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Today we are being called to give up on self-righteousness. The gospel doesn't make room for comparisons or our best efforts or our pride. The gospel is about a Savior who came to redeem broken helpless rebels just like us. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God today. May each and every one of us cry out together with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by Your Word and Spirit, You have shown us, God, You've shown us our hearts today. You have revealed our sin and our shortcomings. We are a proud, pitiful people. but you have also given us a great hope in the gospel. Drive us toward honesty. Drive us toward humility. God, drive us to Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.